Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing Alain Collard's Around the World Alone and we're on chapter 6. Chapter 6. The Hour of Truth. Monday, January 28th. The automatic pilot is not working and two or three times during the night the sails were aback. Fortunately the weather is ideal and I can work at repairs. I began with the pilot problem and this, of course, eventually required climbing the mast for the umpteenth time. That was no problem because of the steps that I had installed in Sydney and because the swell has died down considerably. Nonetheless, I was a bit worried by the sight of three killer whales swimming around and around Manareva. These black and white mammals are quite large, sometimes reaching a length of nearly 30 feet. They can be dangerous and these three seemed to be watching me with a look of particular impatience while I worked. With one eye on the whales, I succeeded in fastening the spinnaker pulley, then in attaching the electronic anemometer to what was left of its bracket. I suspect that the bracket was broken by an albatross. I also managed to lower the plumb line in the mast, then I climbed down to find that the sail was still sticking. So up I went again. During my radio break for the Whitbread news, I heard that gear is going to put into Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands for food and water. I also was able to give endurance my position and explain my problem with the generator. Adventure and British soldier have promised to help me with repairs, time permitting. There is a soft wind and showers. If it were not for the temperature, Manoreva could well be in the doldrums. With the anemometer missing its counterweight, the boat was steering between 40 degrees and 90 degrees, and I decided to dispense with the anemometer altogether. I've attached control lines to the tiller. Endurance broadcasts the weather at Cape Horn every day. Yesterday, she reported unusual low-pressure areas, 28.6 degrees at 43 degrees south and 70 degrees west, rough seas and squalls. We are now approaching our goal, and it is not far ahead of us. Today's meridian establishes our location at 56 degrees 50 minutes south, 69 degrees 30 minutes west, while Cape Horn lies at 55 degrees 58 minutes south, 67 degrees 38 minutes west. Strangely enough, just as I have come within a few days of the point of the globe which has been at the centre of my existence for so many months, I am pervaded by a kind of lassitude. The touch-and-go kind of navigation that I have had to do since leaving Sydney added to all of the problems I have had that have prevented me from feeling that things are completely under control has gnawed away at my enthusiasm. The weather continues to be uncertain. Trade wind skies, beautiful weather, squalls. The shifting winds on the whole have slackened and navigation has reflected that fact and lost something of its charm. Entries in my log have become shorter. Tacked, veered about, veered about again. Squalls, cloudy weather. Breakdown follows breakdown and repairs seem a heavy burden. In a single day, I climbed the mast five times to grapple with the sheets, the lift, the wind indicator. I will not even mention the hours spent bailing out the bilge, decanting jerry cans of polluted waters that have a definite smell of my fuel mixture. I suspect that the partition in the aft storage compartment is no longer watertight, and, to top it off, the top of the automatic pilot has come loose once more, and I had to tighten the screws again while straddling the aft sockle, a very dangerous perch. The one bit of bright news was that, for the first time in many days, I managed to hoist the mainsail and it stayed up for a while. Then it began misbehaving again, breaking its slides and finally tumbling down so precipitously that its cap missed me by only a hair's breadth. Even my faithful foresail has had hank problems. 
In these circumstances, the tally sheet for the week cannot be more than mediocre. In fact, it is quite bad. 1,090 miles for the week, which is the lowest for a long time. Yesterday, Thursday, after the meridian, I estimated that I was only 450 miles from Cape Horn, and I was able to give endurance my estimated time of arrival as approximately 72 hours. By then, I should be at the foot of the rock. I expect to reach the Diego Ramirez Islands to the southwest of the Cape on Saturday, February 2nd, but when dealing with the sea, one never knows when one will arrive anywhere. Nothing. Not the sails are back in the wind, not the unintentional jibing, the dead calms, the problems with the automatic pilot, the winds shifting to the east, nor even my own foul mood. Nothing can keep us, Manareva and me, from moving inexorably closer, mile by mile to the Cape, a place of storms and the site of so many tragedies. Meanwhile, the mood of the sea is inscrutable. There is a strong swell, but no waves to speak of, and the barometer is at rock bottom. Saturday, February the 2nd. I awoke to find that the wind had shifted to the northwest. I have no idea how long it has been that way. There are clouds overhead. Toward the northeast, in the distance, I see strange white reflections. The glaciers of Tierra del Fuego? This is certainly the day for strange visions, perhaps mirages or cloud effects. I now think I see land at 50 degrees on the compass. Keep your cool, color. This is really the limit. The wind has now shifted to the northeast, which means that our approach to the Cape will be at a speed equal approximately to that of a turtle, tacking from west to east. That is all I needed. The meridian confirms that we are now less than 100 miles away. We are still not coming to the wind, and the sounding apparatus still cannot give me a reading. For months now, I have been travelling toward that mass of rocks that will soon be within sight. For months, I have been expecting storm winds to sweep me into Drake Passage, between Tierra del Fuego and Antarctica. And now, I'm here, and nervous as a racehorse on the eve of the derby. Is it possible that I haven't done everything that I could have to make myself worthy of my encounter with the rock? That all my grumbling in the last few days has turned the cape against me? For Cape Horn, as every seaman knows, allows passage only to those who are worthy. Relax, I tell myself. No one tries to round Cape Horn without knowing what he's doing and without having put himself into the proper frame of mind. And certainly no one tries it without having taken all the precautions that, in themselves, constitute a sort of psychological preparation. A sailor does not approach the Cape without having passed through an apprenticeship of another kind, one that reaches into the very soul. In the last few days, I have not been mindful of these things, and I've been uneasy for the past month. I can't count the times I've pictured 19th century tall ships out of the North Atlantic struggling for weeks against the currents and against winds from the west. How many seamen, I wondered, have been swept overboard by those gigantic waves? How many topmast men have been catapulted from the masts by those incredible walls of water? How many worthy ships have been lost, thereby edging in black one of the most inspiring pages of human history? I've read many accounts written by old Cape Horn men and many works of maritime history in order to immerse myself in the spirit of those men's accomplishments. I knew the fantastic story of the two ships that sailed from Holland in 1615 in search of a new commercial route to the Indies and had the daring to sail southward along the South American coast into unexplored latitudes. There, they stubbornly entered the strait that separates Tierra del Fuego from Staten Island, Isla de los Estados, 
and continued on until reaching the great dark cliff that acts as the gateway into the southern sea. The names of Shooton and Le Maire, captains of those two ships, are known and revered by every Cape Horn man. The name Horn, in fact, is that of their home port, Horn, in Holland. Those who follow in the wake of Shooton and Le Maire do not always have the same luck as those two daring captains. Many of them never return to port. Their routes are too littered with traps, with winds too strong and ice too impenetrable. For that reason, the Cape Horn route was not greatly used at first except for the sailing ships of the great explorers and discoverers during the century of light. Only gold and the passions that it stirred had the power to awaken courage. Then the Boulevard of the Pacific came into being, leading to California and later to Australia. With increased experience and technical improvements, traffic around the Horn increased and became heavy. Magnificent sailing ships, the great clippers with their sleek lines engaged in races against time at fabulous speeds on the Cape Horn route. At first, there was gold, then nitrate from Chile. Later came new wealth, nickel from New Caledonia, lumber from Oregon, wool and wheat from Australia, all of which came through the forgotten passage first opened by Schouten and Le Maire, and then virtually forgotten. That fearsome strait where the Pacific rushes into the Atlantic, where the waves circle the globe unbroken and rise from the rocks like monsters of the deep, and the winds burst out from the tunnel formed by the Andes. Out of these voyages, these formidable and permanent races in which crews battled both for prestige and for money, for even then speed meant profits, there arose a race of men characterized by strength and courage. In them, the spirit of self-sacrifice and patience was joined to the eternal spirit of adventure and to man's ancient love of the sea. It was a vibrant age, an age which conferred on sailing its reputation for nobility, an age which shines like a torch across time and which we must preserve in our hearts. Legend, the child of history and time, recounts the intrepid saga of the seamen who set out to spend their lives in the Antarctic ice, sailing for Valparaiso, where others will leave their bones, as the old sailor's song has it. Sometimes it took as many as twenty voyages before a sailor was able to see the horn in the fog, an ominous and jagged mass rising from the cold grey sea toward the dark clouds overhead. It stood there like a watchdog, bestriding the howling fifties, a tragic precipice beaten by the fury of the winds, its very appearance making it, for many, a mystic place, a holy grail of the sea which, though pursued, was never attained. For mountain climbers, there are summits to be conquered, such as Annapurna and Everest. For me, the transatlantic victory was one such peak, and from there I saw the second, higher peak that I knew, come what may, I must reach. Now, in the last miles of my voyage, I stand before not the roof of the world, but the farthest corner of the earth, Cape Horn, majestic in its forbidding solitude. The horn is not an enemy. It is not an adversary in the sporting sense of the term. Rather, it is a symbol. A symbol of that which is difficult, of a certain anguish and fear to be overcome, of a great reward to be won, step by step. It represents more than an individual victory. It is part of a heritage which must be accepted and preserved. Generations of men have fought and sometimes died here, and though we as amateurs cannot pretend to compare ourselves to them, we are privileged to continue their line. 
the legend of Cape Horn must be kept alive, and if no one dares any longer to confront the Cape, then it will become nothing more than a black dot in geography books. Things must be experienced, if they are to have reality. I never realised that so much as when I talked with Captain Gautier, Dean of the Cape Horn Men. Before sailing from San Marlo, I wanted to have the guidance and advice of men who had taken part in the great adventure of Cape Horn, for whom the Cape was part of their lives. I felt then how fortunate it was that the book had not yet been finally closed on the Cape, and that the experience that those men had gained from their struggles would benefit those who came after them. I took out Captain Gautier's chart with its penciled tracings of his 22 roundings of Cape Horn. I smoothed out the folds and sharpened my pencil, and then with a trembling hand I began to draw the route of Manareva. The meridian of Saturday, February the 2nd, has us at 56 degrees 58 minutes south and 69 degrees 24 minutes west. At about 1400 hours, I sighted land. There was no doubt about it this time. Islands, which my calculations confirmed, were indeed the Diego Ramirez group. What's more, I've been able to get a reading from the depth sounder. This is the first land that I've seen in almost a month. It is a strange sight, at once sinister and beautiful. I contacted Endurance and gave my ETA, tomorrow, at dawn. Two hours later, Endurance came alongside. She will escort me throughout the night, and tomorrow, after rounding the horn, she will help me with repairs once we reach a sheltered spot. Meanwhile, her crew and officers are all on deck, the officers in dressed uniform on the bridge, an inspiring sight. One must be English to dine in such style at Cape Horn. During the night, the wind dropped to nothing, and I was able to get two good hours of sleep, I got up to have a look around, to stand watch in the cockpit for a while, and to marvel at the delicate geometric lines of the Southern Cross above the mainmast. Sunday, February the 3rd, 0300, dawn. The sun is rising in a burst of pink and gold that covers the horizon. In the distance, I see land again, this time the island of Hermite, and undoubtedly the rearing silhouette of Cape Horn, still imprecise but present nonetheless. At the stroke of noon, I made leeway to wait for the technical team from Endurance, which was bringing an inflatable raft with a load of fuel and a few supplies, with a touch of human warmth. Here, at the edge of the world, I was going to drink a champagne toast and have some fresh bread. After weeks of solitude, lost among the towering waves, without heat or light, with no means of automatic steering since my equipment broke down, alone to face the elements, the nights on watch, the damage... I could hardly bring myself to believe that I was going to have the undiluted pleasure of drinking a toast to my dream and to the solidarity of the human race. Following this celebration, there were several hours of hard work on the generator. Endurance's chief mechanic, with the help of two diesel mechanics, soon found the source of the trouble. The decompression solenoid in the starting circuit needed to be replaced. A screwdriver was the only tool necessary to effect this repair, and I watched closely as it was done. The men from Endurance next helped me to get water out of the fuel line and gave me fuel for the small standby generator. Then they left me alone to get underway toward the horn, which, as seamen, was the best gift they could have given me. I approached the cape slowly, moving in the swell toward the realisation of my dream. The wind itself seemed to get into the spirit of the day by falling so as to give me enough time to feast on the spectacle before me. There was even a slight contrary breeze which served to slow Manareva's progress further and prolong the feast.
It was a moment of respite before winning the prize, which would be mine in due course for a battle won. It was a moment of tranquility in a long voyage, long in going, long in coming, and long in worry and anguish. A voyage now tarrying a moment before attaining its climax. The pause was staged in the most beautiful weather possible, an instant of calm under azure skies, that rare phenomenon that occurs between two spells of less beneficent weather. But Cape Horn would have been unfaithful to its own legend if there had not been something in the sky, something in the sea, something lying below the level of the senses that had an air of menace about it. Overhead, clouds appeared and moved rapidly across the sky. Around me the water seemed to take on a sombre density as it tapped at the hull of Manareva. A certain feeling overcame me, no doubt a reflection of my own mood, tinged as it was with the memory of the seamen of old and the battles that they had waged in these difficult waters as their ships were tossed about in sudden violent squalls and they were deprived even of their sight of the rock, the reward of all their efforts. Today, Sunday, February the 3rd, at the time that, in the arenas of Spain, matadors are face to face with their destiny in La Jolla de Verdad, a boy from Clamacy is nearing Cape Horn, only a few years after the sea was first revealed to him in a rendezvous which he saw written in the sky over Newport. Everything is going well. Our approach is slow, as is fitting for the great moments in life. I am at peace with myself. I feel somewhat light-headed and my respiration is perhaps a bit more rapid than usual. I can barely take my eyes from that great rock that I have seen so often in my imagination. It is there, fragile and yet mighty, as ambivalent as all the objects of our dreams, delicate in the lacy clouds crowning its summit, solid in its massive virility among the waves. It is there, the hotly contested prize in a battle of titans between the sea and the rock, craggy as though hewn by strokes of some unimaginable axe, furrowed by wrinkles, striped by crevasses. The light, like the sea, is a study in contrast. It now has a greyish hue, but is it the daylight that seems suddenly stationary between night and fog, that seems a pale shaft between two faint glimmers that are neither sky nor land? It is growing dark, and the sun is declining at the other end of the world. Its rays are reflected feebly from the ice flows, and I no longer know if the grey I see is the darkness of night or the light of day. This meeting with my dream has given rise to such strong emotions within me that I cannot repress a feeling of profound nostalgia, for I know that it is impossible to remain immobile in time, and that, for me, Cape Horn will soon belong to the past. My eyes stray from the rock to my compass and back again to the rock, where they linger. Then suddenly, I have passed it. My eyes strain and there is nothing but the mist and the spray. My wake measures the distance between the rock and Manareva, and it grows steadily longer. Manareva's wake, which so shortly before trailed into the Pacific, now measures the distance that we have come from the rock. I think that there will never again be another experience like it. There will be nothing so enormous and weighty to move in my mind from the present to the past. Even now, memory is replacing hope within me. At the very instant of victory, what was there to remind me that all things must have an end? Is there any victory in the world 
that is not tainted with the gall of bitter regret. As we continued underway, there suddenly came to me a vision of my anticipated return home to France, and of the sensationalists and the professionals of doom who would assault me with their questions. I could already see their faces wreathed in professionally engaging smiles, their hands thrusting out microphones. So, Alain, Cape Horn was a disappointment this year? As though I had not played the game according to the rules. As though I had not followed my route around the world, from San Marlo to the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Lewin, New Zealand. The roaring forties and the howling fifties, taking my chances with the fortunes of the sea. As though unexpected good weather at Cape Horn reduced the whole thing to a charade. As though the interminable hours under sail, the unending nights on watch, the bone-penetrating cold and the frozen hands, and above all the weeks of the stabbing anxiety, were like a dagger in my guts, as though all these things were nothing. As though the lives of four men swept overboard by the icy black water meant nothing more than that we returned to our homes with an empty place in our hearts that would never again be filled. I rose to my feet and shouted, No! It's not right! It should not be so! I do not deny that every age has the right to choose its own heroes and to measure by their own standards the accomplishments of those heroes. But no one has the right to send a man to his death in order to get a good story. Cape Horn, after all, is not a circus act. The sea is never unfair. She alone decides, for reasons of her own, if those who respect her will go gently to their hour of truth, far from the crowds and far from the world, for an instant of happiness, so rare that it has no name. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level, and there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today, so I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.